Westinghouse Broadcasting Company brings you The Sound of War, the actual sound record of World War II, 2,191 days from the time Hitler's panzer divisions moved across the Polish borders to the ceremony of the Japanese surrender aboard the United States battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. World War II, the most terrible period of death and destruction in the long history of man. World War II, a drama preserved for all time through the medium of radio, an era never to be forgotten. Tonight, the most dramatic voices and sounds of the war. conflict in the history of man to have preserved for all time the sound record of its terrible tragic moments it is an unequaled record for the course of the war is easily heard in the voices and sounds of the men and women and children who lived and died and in their voices and words are sadness hope and eventual joy that was the transition from frustration and defeat to complete victory this then is the war as we know it with the people, many of whom have long since gone, who lived its terrible moments. It is September 29th, 1938. The scene, the Führer's Palace, the Führerhaus in Munich. In the most historic international meeting since World War I, to save the peace of the world, four men sit and talk over the fate of Czechoslovakia. The men, Chancellor Adolf Hitler of Germany, Il Duce Benito Mussolini of Italy, Premier Edouard Deladier of France, and Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of Great Britain. And what about Czechoslovakia? Proud, majestic Czechoslovakia. Their young men poised to defend the homeland against the Nazi oppression. Their leaders ready to sound the trumpet. Their populace ready to die on the land created for them by Great Britain and France after World War I. Czechoslovakia now stands alone. They are not invited to Munich. When the four-power meeting is over, Czechoslovakia was dead. They lost one-third of their nation, a third of their population, all of their military fortifications. For all intents and purposes, they were eliminated from the face of Europe. Returning to London, Chamberlain waved the famous white agreement paper that would result in peace in our time. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you perhaps have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance 
for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. It is now September 1st, 1939, less than one year later. Since the Munich Pact, Czechoslovakia has been fully swallowed and ceases to exist. Germany has signed an unbelievable non-aggression pact with Russia, and now the Nazis need not fear an attack from the east. So now Adolf Hitler looks east to Poland. Poland, a scavenger nation, grabbing land from helpless Czechoslovakia after Munich under the approving eye of Chancellor Hitler. Poland continuation of what Winston Churchill said a year before, after Munich. The first sip, the first foretaste that will be proffered to us year by year. Poland, next on Hitler's timetable of world domination. Those assembled arise and stand to greet the arrival of the German Führer. The applause greets the Führer who has just arrived in the Kohl Opera House to address the Reichstag, which has been called an extraordinary session. We are expecting that Prime Minister Goering, in a very few moments, will open formally the session in the Reichstag. When Polen versuchen sollte, auf dem Weg zollpolitischer Maßnahmen zwanzig wirtschaftlich zu vernichten, dass dann Deutschland nicht mehr länger untätig zusehen könnte. I told the Polish ambassador three weeks ago that if the situation continued as it was, if Danzig were persecuted and were, it were attempted by Poland to ruin Danzig economically, the situation could not be tolerated. We interrupt this broadcast of Adolf Hitler's speech just momentarily to report a dispatch from Paris which says that Premier Delagier of France has now called the French Council of Ministers for an emergency meeting which is to take place just 10 minutes from now at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. I therefore resolve to speak to Poland in the same language in which Poland has addressed us for such a long time. Once again, we interrupt very briefly this talk by Chancellor Hitler to announce that in London, Parliament has been summoned to meet at 6 p.m. in London, which is 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time today. I thought see no reason, says Mr. Hitler, why Russia and Germany should have been enemies any longer. Poland has today, for the first time, on our own territory, 
regulären Soldaten geschossen. Poland, for the first time this evening, has shot at regular soldiers upon our territory. From now on, bomb will be met by bomb. Be Kyle to the Fuhrer. attacked Poland on September 1st, and the world waited for the moves of France and Great Britain. After two days of furious negotiations between London and Paris, there was no turning back. The two allies would honor their treaty with Poland. They would march against Germany. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain spoke to the British Empire. Settlement 
between Germany and Poland. But Hitler would not have it. He had evidently made up his mind to attack Poland whatever happened. And although he now says he put forward reasonable proposals which were rejected by the Poles, that is not a true statement. The proposals were never shown to the Poles, nor to us. And though they were announced in the German broadcast on Thursday night, Hitler did not wait to hear comments on them, but ordered his troops to cross the Polish frontier the next morning. His action shows convincingly that there is no chance of expecting that this man will ever give up his practice of using force to gain his will. He can only be stopped by force. And we and France are today in fulfillment of our obligations, going to the aid of Poland, who is so bravely resisting this wicked and unprovoked attack upon her people. We have a clear conscience. We have done all that any country could do to establish peace. But a situation in which no word given by Germany's ruler could be trusted, and no people or country could feel itself safe, had become intolerable. And now that we have resolved to finish it, I know that you will all play your part with calmness and courage. At such a moment as this, the assurances of support which we have received from the Empire are a source of profound encouragement to us. When I finish speaking, certain detailed announcements will be made on behalf of the government. Give these your close attention. Now, may God bless you all, and may he defend the right it is evil things that we shall be fighting against. Brute force, bad faith, injustice, oppression, and persecution. And against them, I am certain that the right will prevail. And now into our studio has just come Mr. Elmer Davis. Mr. Davis, I don't know whether you heard Mr. Chamberlain's statement or not. We've all been assembled here so hastily. You did hear it, and so perhaps you would like to come over here to the microphone and take over for a few moments, would you, sir? Very little to add to the facts in this case. The tone of Mr. Chamberlain was that of a very tired and very saddened man, a man who a year ago gave up not only the safety and liberty of another country, though I do not think he had any idea at the time of how much he was giving up, but gave up a considerable part of the protection that uh, the situation in Europe at that time had afforded to France and England for the sake of peace. Clear up till yesterday, it looked as if he might make greater sacrifices for the sake of peace, as if there might be some possible concession this time, as there had been the time before. And you will remember that yesterday it was Mr. Greenwood, the leader of the opposition, who got the cheers in the House of Commons when he rose to speak and cries of speak for England. At that time, Mr. Greenwood fully realized the difficulties of Mr. Chamberlain's position and said he was glad he was not in that position himself. It was clear that Mr. Chamberlain, as he said, was not going to give up any single effort to settle this thing peacefully. But it is now his opinion that Hitler would not have it.
United States, Americans were in the midst of a long Labor Day weekend. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke to the people by radio. My countrymen and my friends, tonight my single duty is to speak to the whole of America. Until 4.30 o'clock this morning, I had hoped against hope that some miracle would prevent a devastating war in Europe and bring to an end the invasion of Poland by Germany. For four long years, a succession of actual wars and constant crises have shaken the entire world and have threatened in each case to bring on the gigantic conflict, which is today, unhappily, a fact. I myself cannot and do not prophesy the course of events abroad. And the reason is that, is that because I have of necessity such a complete picture of what is going on in every part of the world, that I do not dare to do so. And the other reason is that I think it is honest for me to be honest with the people of the United States. I cannot prophesy the immediate economic effect of this new war on our nation. But I do say that no American has the moral right to profiteer at the expense either of his fellow citizens or of the men, the women, and the children who are living and dying in the midst of war in Europe. This nation will remain a neutral nation, but I cannot ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. Even a neutral has a right to take account of facts. Even a neutral cannot be asked to close his mind or close his conscience. I have said not once but many times that I have seen war and that I hate war. I say that again and again. I hope the United States will keep out of this war. I believe that it will. And I give you assurance and reassurance that every effort of your government will be directed toward that end. As the war moved in, there were young voices and sounds. Children were evacuated from Great Britain and sent to the United States and Canada. There were transatlantic phone calls at Christmas.
also from the Empire, there were the voices of the daughters of King George VI, Elizabeth, later to be queen, and Margaret Rose. there was terrible defeat. In May of 1940, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain gave up his seals of office. It was clear that at this critical moment in the war, what was needed was the formation of a government which would include members of the Labour and Liberal oppositions. His Majesty has now entrusted to my friend and colleague, Mr. Winston Churchill, the task of forming a new administration on a national basis. When the war began, a former First Lord of the Admiralty was called back into service. Ships of the Royal Navy wagged their signal flags and blinked their blinkers with the message that brought joy to the men of the fleet. The message, Winnie is back. Winston Churchill was back as First Lord of the Admiralty. Now as Germany invaded the Low Countries, this May 10th, 1940, and Nazi panzers crashed across the borders of France in what would be a death blow, Winnie was back again. Winston Churchill had become Prime Minister of Great Britain. I speak to you for the first time as Prime Minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country, of our empire, of our allies, and above all, of the cause of freedom. A tremendous battle is raging in France and Flanders, the Germans, by a remarkable combination of air bombing and heavily armored tanks, have broken through the French defenses north of the Maginot Line, and strong columns of their armored vehicles are ravaging the open country, which for the first day or two was without defenders. We have differed and quarreled in the past, but now one bond unites us all to wage war until victory is won and never to surrender ourselves to servitude and shame whatever the cost and the agony may be if this is one of the most awe-striking periods in the long history of France and Britain it is also beyond doubt 
the most sublime. Behind them, behind us, behind the armies and fleets of Britain and France, gather a group of shattered states and bludgeoned great races, the Czechs, the Poles, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Dutch, the Belgians, upon all of whom the long night of barbarism will descend, unbroken even by a star of hope, unless we conquer, as conquer we must, as conquer we shall. Westinghouse Broadcasting Company has brought you the voices and sounds of World War II, the most dramatic and tragic period in the history of man. This program was written, produced, and directed by Bud Greenspan. My name is David Perry.